everybody, it's Play to Innovate, the innovation show that goes beyond the hype. Now here's your host, my dad, Brett Schwab. Welcome to another episode of Play to Innovate. Today I want to talk to you about the risks of innovation, and I can assure you there are quite a few. Now everything I'm about to share with you is a combination of my experience, my research, and about 30 conversations I've had with companies in various industries over the last uh, three, four months. Now, they all have similar stories about why they have not or are just about to start innovating their products. So stop me if you've heard this one before. And I think the the mental and sometimes the uh, conference room debate goes something like this. Innovation, or actually scratch that, true innovation is critical. But it's full of risks. An estimated 85 to 95% of new products are likely to fail. Still, stagnation means death, and you can only continuously improve one product for so long. In fact, studies show that the majority of people, and by majority, many of the studies quote around 65%, look for innovation in the products that they buy. So, what do you do? Now, I'm not naive. I get that there are many forces at play when it comes to introducing a new product. Still, that's no excuse to avoid innovation or hastily shove product out the door and hope for the best. In fact, there have been many successful products that came out well after their predecessors and blew the predecessor out of the water. I believe the iPhone didn't even appear for two or three years after Palm Pilot's phone came out. And Palm Pilot was doing quite well. It was actually a popular device. So as much risk as there is to innovation, there is always a way to mitigate it. Before I talk about that, though, let's look at some examples of failed innovations and talk about what might have gone wrong. So I want to take you back to the 1930s, when Buckminster Fuller, one of my favorite, all-time favorite inventors, dreamers, and architects, introduced the Dymaxion Roundhouse. Now, Dymaxion was his name that he gave to dynamic maximum tension or something to that effect. He was exploring how cables and tension would help actually hold a structure together and make it stronger. And so he introduced the Dymaxion Roundhouse as an easy-to-assemble dome-shaped house that could be shipped on a single truck and assembled in under two days. If you are familiar with Buckminster Fuller, then you know that he is the mind behind geodesic dome um, structures such as Epcot Center, and he was a big influence in a lot of the dome-shaped kind of moon base structures that you see in illustrations. Now, this house failed because, one, it was too small, but also the the interior couldn't be customized or expanded, and you really couldn't find furniture that fit the round walls. Essentially, the concept didn't consider the peripheral things, like furniture, or future needs, like expansion. So as a starter home, it was essentially two bedrooms and I believe one small bath, and if you couldn't expand that, then it wouldn't meet the needs of a growing family. Now, let's move forward into the early 80s, and this is about 1982, when Colgate introduced their frozen meals. Now, I want to say that this is not 
a description of an innovation in any way, shape, or form, but I include it here because it's an example of what I believe is the arrogance of a brand to believe that their name could carry, promote, or give credibility somehow to even highly unrelated products. So you'd walk down the frozen food aisle at your grocery store and see all the frozen foods, and all of a sudden now you see Colgate's name on a box with the the picture of some kind of meal under it, which sounds to me like just a branding issue, and, and I don't know how they missed that. But it sounds like also a simple name change would have worked. Even if they used their brand style, they could still give it a different name. Now, I always say kudos to them for pushing the bounds that far, and there have been other brands that have tried similar things, but this is just one example, like I said, of a brand believing that their name would carry a new product no matter what it was. Now, those meals were short-lived. I believe they were only on shelves for about 18 months. But speaking of food, let's move forward to 1997, when Clearly Canadian Company introduced Uh, kind of a lava lamp of a drink. It was Orbit Soda. I don't know why they called it soda, because it actually wasn't carbonated, but it had these colorful, chewy, floating balls suspended in it. The thing about this drink, though, is that it, it came in multiple flavors, but it had the kind of consistency of syrup. It did look really cool on the shelf, and in fact, there is kind of this cult following. You can actually still buy the stuff, on eBay, so if you want to try 20-year-old soda, go for it, but it's about $50 a bottle. If you find one of these bottles, you'll still see that the balls are still floating, suspended, undisturbed, they haven't deteriorated or anything, which makes me wonder what I drank back then. I actually did try a bottle. Now, the reason that it failed is because it tasted bad, and the same thing I found, which was People found the floating balls were just this weird experience as they drank. You know, you felt like you might choke on them or something. But it was also that if you caught them in your mouth, they were chewy. And it was just, that was also weird too. So again, a weird drink, but kudos to them for pushing the bounds of beverages or what food could be. But moving forward and talking about pushing the bounds of flavors and things like that, I just want to stop really quickly on watermelon Oreos. So uh, Oreos that tasted like watermelon, seriously, I don't know. They were a special thing. Uh, They were only around for a few months. That was just pushing the bounds of flavors. I actually have to wonder why they didn't just kind of produce a few and put them in a break room someplace and ask people what they thought before putting them on shelves. But again, uh, another pushing the boundaries kind of thing. Now, not to stay stuck on food, let's move into Google Glass. And this came out uh, just a few years ago. Google Glass was either poorly executed or it was ahead of its time. I'm not sure which it was. But like other failed products that sound like really great ideas, in the end, it really didn't fit with the way people will eventually use the product or saw using the product. In fact, I actually don't think that anybody really knew what to do with it, and I don't even believe the developers really knew what to do with it. I think that they thought people would figure it out. And I'll use Google Glass as an example later, but what happened was that it was introduced at a bad time in the marketplace. I'll talk about that in a minute. 
I think it was also that the technology really wasn't quite mature enough to support that product. I think that also, again, people didn't know what to do with it. They just kind of wanted one. It seemed like a really cool toy. But speaking of useless technology, there are other examples of more obvious useless technology, such as internet-connected fridges or uh, TVs stuffed into the door. And, you know, this is really just an example of stuffing technology in everything because it's trendy. But seriously, who wants to stand in front of their fridge reading their social media feed or, or watching TV? If you want to watch TV, you don't want to be stuck in one position where the door is facing. You want to be able to move that thing around, and that's what we have tablets for. And by the way, every single internet-based fridge or technology-stuffed fridge has failed in the marketplace. Nobody's actually found that one technology that they can just jam in there and build the wow factor and sell more fridges because of it. But I add this to the growing list of Bluetooth and Wi-Fi connected devices that don't really need those technologies. It's kind of like my wife's ultrasonic face brush that works perfectly fine for washing your face, and now they've discontinued the model she has for a Bluetooth connected one with an app. I don't know what this app does, but really, does it really need an app? But the thing about all of these foods and technologies, all of these innovations that failed, you have to ask yourself, is there some kind of common cause or common issue behind them? And I say there isn't just one. Uh, we can look for some themes. Uh, there are kind of common themes out there, but there's no real magic formula that I know of, and I don't think anybody's found one, for figuring out if a product will succeed or fail, except for maybe even doing some user research early on, which I know after talking to a lot of these companies that I spoke with in the last few months, they don't do that all the time. In fact, they're kind of surprised when I bring it up, and they think that it's really complex or expensive when it's really not. But let's look at some of these common themes. And the first one really is poor execution. It's either misreading the market, or you rushed to market and missed key features, or you missed what people really wanted in your mad dash to market. It could also be that you didn't take into account all the issues, such as the example of the Dymaxion house, where Buckminster Fuller didn't take into account that furniture needed to fit against square walls, or at least you needed to include round furniture in the house. But it also could be something like brand association. So when a brand is too strongly associated with a specific product or industry, you're going to have a hard time introducing products that are outside of that association. And I know that Elon Musk has talked about when you start a company to uh, keep it more generic so that way you can introduce more than just one kind of product. And in this case, Tesla is now more than just cars. It's an energy company and they can continue on with different products. Now, this is a marketing issue, but it does show that innovation is more than just about the technicals. Everyone has a role to play. So you want to have somebody that can explain it to the market, get them ready for it. You want to make sure that it produces the right end results and benefits. So it's more like a sales kind of cons consideration, but it's also more of a user experience consideration. You want to make sure that it is properly built and that 
that it is executed properly, and that's an engineering issue as well. So everybody has a role to play. And so when you talk about brand issues, you might actually be talking about making sure that everybody in the company is playing their part. But you could just as well be introducing an unnecessary product or including unnecessary features. So just because something is trending in one industry or market doesn't mean that you need to include it too. Let's talk about those refrigerators again. Uh, Just adding the wrong feature or technology not only can confuse people, and these are some of the conversations that I've had with people about these refrigerators, because they don't know what to do with it, but it also shows people that you're not listening to what they really want. Nobody really cares about putting a TV in the refrigerator if you don't have enough space for the food, which it seems to be an issue with a lot of refrigerators these days. Now, more and more, I'm starting to see a better use of interior space, But you want to also make sure that you have an efficient product that's going to last. And some of the complaints that I hear from friends and family is that they buy this refrigerator and all of a sudden a year or a year and a half later, shelves are cracking, things are breaking, the ice ice maker is breaking, things like that. So even if the technology doesn't exist to improve your product in the right way, doesn't mean you need to include gadgets and garbage that nobody really wants. Essentially, nobody's going to buy it, which brings up the question of do people see the benefit? Now, this is not just a marketing issue. If your product is well executed, you know it's and you know it provides a real benefit, then it may be mostly a marketing issue. But on the other hand, it may also point to poor design in that people don't immediately understand the result or benefit it provides. It might be poor design in that people don't know how to use it. And now my goal with any product is that somebody can walk up to it and just get it. I want them to look at the product or software and just kind of know what to do, which is a tall order in many cases, but you know, it's possible I've done it. But it could be that you're also including the wrong features or it might be poorly executed. And again, it could be that the technology doesn't exist or is not mature enough to support the product that you have, and in which case you either have to get really creative or you have to do something different. But it also could be that supporting products and services are just missing. You know, we often say that these products are ahead of their time when the infrastructure or, you know, surrounding products don't exist to support it. Because even if your product works great, if it lacks supporting infrastructure or supporting products, it's going to fail. You know, you could think of it as inventing the cell phone, but not having any cell network. It's the same issue with the lack of furniture, again, for the round Dymaxion house. Not to pick on Buckminster, who is, again, one of my favorite dreamers and inventors, but that was a big issue. And, you know, it might seem like a small thing at the time, but you have to consider all the peripherals in your product. Now, these are all pretty obvious things in hindsight. Looking forward, though, you have to wonder if there's a way to prevent failures like these. And I think that there is. I think that the risk can be reduced, but I I know that no one can guarantee anything. But there are some questions that you can start asking yourself. So first of all, start by being honest with yourself. Is what you're introducing just a gimmick or is it a real improvement? 
is this something that will improve people's lives? Or can you explain the benefits to them and show them how it can improve their lives? Now, if the benefit isn't readily apparent, maybe you can develop a fan base sort of thing and those people can start explaining it to their friends and on and on. But you really want your product, again, to be something that people can look at and understand and see the value. Now, it kind of comes down to this. If, for example, you could explain the real value of being able to watch TV or read my social feed on my fridge door, or even the real value of taking a photo of what's inside my fridge for the extra thousands of dollars, then maybe it's a real improvement. But I still contend that I could overbuy all my food and still come out ahead and still never have to spend the amount of money it would take to buy a fridge that takes photos of my food. Now, if you're just hoping people will find the value for themselves or love the wow factor and then find the value for themselves, you're in, some, you're in for some really expensive disappointment. Again, case in point, the Google Glass idea, where it's just, it was kind of this cool technology, but eh, nobody really cared, and I think nobody knew what to do with it after a while. So, a cool toy, but that's about it. But then also, highly related to that is, will people see the value? Or, more accurately, is this something that people have been looking for? And if they haven't been looking for it, is it because you're seeing a benefit that people are missing? Which is quite possible. I mean, that happens all the time. But is user or market testing confirming your suspicions? Because if you're not doing user testing or market testing, you're in for some shocks. I can guarantee that. Every time I've done user testing, that those people, that group of people have come back and told me they wanted something different or they didn't know how to use something that I thought was a really obvious thing. So do your user testing. Have I drilled that in your head enough? I don't know. We'll, we'll keep doing it. But it actually often takes failed attempts, and it does take explorations, like the examples I was talking about, to learn or find other ideas. And I always talk about the post-it note, where they were looking for one product, uh, this adhesive, and that failed. But through that failure, they actually developed post-it notes, which is just a wild success. But if you are introducing something that you believe is a real value, you've done your user testing and, you know, it's confirmed your suspicions, then take a look at other similar products that might have failed and see what you can learn. It doesn't mean that you won't make your own mistakes, but maybe you can avoid the big ones that the other people did. Now, this also brings up the question, is the product ahead of its time? So is the infrastructure or the technology or supporting products in place? Um, Again, Google Glass, things like that, I believe that the technology is just not mature enough for that kind of thing. Um, You know, I personally am not going to walk around with these ugly-looking glasses on my face, and I don't care if I can get a prescription for them or not. Not going to happen. But has the audience been primed for what you're introducing? And just to keep picking on poor Google, who I think is a cool company... Uh, Their glasses actually came out at a time when there was something of this growing backlash against smartphones and the proliferation of tiny cameras in general. Um, So people were feeling violated. They felt their privacy was violated. 
they felt that they were ending up in videos or in photos on somebody's social feed where they were just kind of background for other people's lives at the time. They were anonymous. Now they felt kind of exposed. And so when Google Glass came out, there were actually a couple of fights because people were wearing them indoors and were asked to stop. In this case, some emotional intelligence, some empathy would have said that they needed either a different strategy for launch or to hold off on launch or something. But the way they did it was basically put the product out and said, hey, we have a fan base, so we're going to do it anyway. And when there is a backlash, they said, oh, we don't kind of really care. <laughs> you know, you'll get used to it. You know, so that was sort of their response or that was at least the response that people heard that might not have been their actual response. So again, some a different strategy, a different marketing, you know, putting something out before they released the glasses to explain the whole thing might have helped. And I have to believe that a lot of what was going on behind Google Glass uh, was really just an internal drive. They, there was somebody internally who really wanted it, or they had too much invested already, and so they pushed it out the door. And I think that's also something with these internet-connected fridges where the technology is just not mature enough. It doesn't really exist. The right answer might be out there. I don't know. But I think that that answer is in the future where something needs to be developed before they become practical or even have a real reason, a real value. Uh, but so this really does bring up the question of, do you have the right marketing strategy? Now, this is something that's outside of my expertise. I, I feel I know enough to be dangerous. I have put together a successful marketing campaign for my furniture business, but I that was really online, and I really can't answer any questions beyond that, except to say that I know that the right marketing strategy can make or break a product launch. So if you are not getting marketing advice, then I think that is a big mistake. Okay, possibly most importantly of all, what did the user testing say? And okay, wait, you did do user testing, right? With a well-chosen user group of kind of a random selection of people. Well, if you didn't, then you're in trouble and you're not alone. I have talked to so many companies that have said, oh, we don't do user testing, we can't afford it, we don't have time for it. Um, so the excuses are speed to market, or we're confident in our anecdotal evidence, or we already spent the money, or so we have to put it out the door, essentially. None of these things are excuses to avoid market or user testing. It doesn't take a lot of effort. It doesn't take a lot of time. You can get a group of eight to 10 people in a room and just kind of show them the product, especially early on. You want to get people in a room, show them a demo before you get too far, start getting some feedback. It takes literally a couple of hours to do that. Maybe even, uh, look, if it takes you four or five hours, it's worth it. But show them a demo get some feedback, start changing directions and adjusting the design from there, do a little bit more, get a little bit more feedback from people, do a little bit more user testing, and continue on until you have that final product. There is no bigger mistake in my mind than not doing user testing. But this also means that you need to know your audience. 
You need to know that you're talking to the right people. So are you talking to the people that use your product or service? I've talked to a couple of companies that said, well, they can only talk to the uh, distributors or the um, agents because they can't reach their end users. And I have to call BS on that one. You can always reach your end users. You're just not trying hard enough. And I'm, I'm, if, I, if you feel like I'm calling you out on that, I'm calling you out on that. You can always find one or two people to start with and start building a network from there. And if you're not doing that, that's just laziness. It's, or it is the belief that you can't and so you don't even try, which I think, again, the biggest mistake you could be making. Even if your audience is hard to reach, figure it out. And then when you do get to them, listen to what they have to say. What do they say they want? You then translate that into end results and benefits that they're going for and confirm it with them by asking confirming questions. And then be sincere. Be sincere about listening to them. Be sincere about wanting to do something about it. I guess in the end, if you don't really care, if you don't really want to do anything about it, then maybe just don't ask. But uh, I think, again, big, big mistake. Overall, though, any product, any service is really like a good novel. In a good novel, the first line will pull you in, and then all the lines after that, all the story after that is the substance. So that first line is like the aesthetics of what you're doing. It is the customer service. It's the way it looks. It's the friendly smile when you walk into a store. That's the that first line. And then you quickly follow that up with some substance that continues to go through the whole experience of using that product or service. The better you do that, the more successful you're likely to be. Now, again, nobody can guarantee that, but the better your experience and the more complete that experience, meaning that the technology exists, it's comfortable to use, it's uh, supported by an infrastructure and all of that, the more likely you are to succeed. Now, it is true. Again, you can't rest on continuous improvement without an eye to what's next. It's also the case that true innovation is risky. But stagnation is death. I've watched two companies almost go out of business and a third that did go out of business because they stagnated. They rested on the products that they had and they didn't give an eye to what was coming next. I mean, think about it. How long did it take for home phones to become a thing of the past? If you're curious, uh, recent surveys show about 53% of adult households don't have a landline anymore. So the trend is continuing on, and it's just increasing faster and faster. In fact, come to think of it, does anyone have a VCR in their home anymore? And in case you didn't know, the last VCR was made back in 2016. You can no longer get blank VHS tapes, and I can bet that your children don't know what a a VCR or a VHS tape is or how to use one. I guess that kind of helps. Nobody needs to set the clock anymore, so no more blinking clock. It really is true that in today's world, you need to plan for your product being replaced or made obsolete in short order. Instead of holding off, though, or making excuses, which I've heard too many of, start making plans to replace your current product. If you start early enough, you probably won't end up in a mad scramble to get to market. And I'm not saying to start making these plans and 
have it done, I'm saying to start giving an eye to what's coming next. And I would say to do that the second that your your current version is out the door, start asking yourself, what will be next? Or how can we push it further? Or how can we replace it completely? A lot of times I've seen that products get completely replaced by something. Landlines are a great and super easy example, but they are completely replaced by a cell phone. And if you think about it, there there are no more actual landlines. They're all uh, kind of vi- voice over IP things through your cable service or through your internet service. They're not real landlines anymore anyway. But I just encourage you to start. Get creative. Do your research. And figure out what's coming next. After all, really, it is better to invent the market than to scramble to keep up like so many other people. It's better to invent the market and invent the product, be the one out ahead, rather than risking essentially your employees' jobs, risking your business, and risking your product. All right, well, I hope you got something out of what I was talking about today, and I will talk to you later. Bye. While I have you here, if you are ready to go to that next step and learn more, check out my book, Play to Innovate. You will find it on Amazon.com. Just search for Play to Innovate and you will find the book. If you would like to set up a workshop for your group or your company, let me know at brett at fivepebblesllc.com. That's B-R-E-T at fivepebblesllc.com. Those two to three hour dynamic workshops are hands-on training that will take you step-by-step through one of your projects. We will better define that project as end results and benefits. You'll also look at the things that might be holding you or your company back so that you can better change them. We will then go through a dynamic, fun, play to innovate session to find solutions for your project. And then the follow-up will be a time for Q&A and to better define those solutions we found in the play to innovate game session. Everybody will leave feeling fully equipped to use the techniques and mindset, not only to complete the project that we started in the workshop, but also on their future work. So again, if you are ready to set up a workshop, contact me at bret at fivepebblesllc.com. That's the number five, pebblesllc.com. Talk to you later. Bye.